welcome to this week's show of Who Cares? What's the Point? The podcast about the mind for people who think. And my name is Saab Johal and I am your host and producer of the show. This week, I'm speaking with Joanne Taylor, who is Senior Lecturer in Psychology at the School of Psychology at Mercy University here in New Zealand. And this week, we're talking about driving anxiety. Now, driving anxiety can range from driving reluctance to a full-on driving phobia. And we think something like 20% of younger, older adults experience this driving anxiety to at least a mild extent. And there may be further number of people, about 6%, reporting moderate to severe driving anxiety. We don't really know what the impact is upon their health and well-being. So listen to this conversation between myself and Joe to find out more. Well, welcome, Joe. Thank you for joining me on the show this week. Um, we normally start with asking people why they got interested in this topic in the first place. So maybe you can tell us that. Oh, gosh, that's a, that's a good question. It's got a very long history. Um, I, I was interested in driving anxiety um, when I was doing my when I was doing my undergraduate degree in my master's papers, so this is some years ago now. Um, so the the transition into looking at older adults has been a more recent one. So so originally I was interested in driving anxiety and what mostly what happens what people's experience is after having a motor vehicle accident. Um, so I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I'm interested in, you know, how people get along in the world and how people cope with difficult situations. And um, and so this question popped up and started me on this programmatic research, I suppose, which at that stage was much more broad in terms of what, what is this uh, phenomenon of driving anxiety. And it, and it turned out, I guess from my research and my master's degree that people who people who have a lot of driving anxiety don't necessarily have that experience because of a, a vehicle crash. Um, in fact, a lot of people have it for a completely different reasons than that. So that was um, that was something that wasn't particularly well understood at that time, and um, led me on to my PhD, which was a much more in-depth exploration of this experience that people have. Um, as well as the the what the relationships might be with people's actual driving skill level, um, and looking at it too from a diagnostic point of view. And it wasn't until after that that I started working with the health and ageing research team and looking at um, issues of of um, mental health and uh, specifically driving anxiety and fear in this older group. I suppose when I was doing my master's thesis and my PhD, it struck me that um, anecdotally a lot of the uh, participants um, that were involved in both of those pieces of work were older women. And uh, in a, the master's research was a... Um, was a survey-based based piece of work. So people called an 0800 number if they were interested in taking part, and, and I sent them a survey. So, and a lot of the phone calls I got were from women who, who were 65-plus um, who hadn't um, had thought that they were experiencing this on their own, that nobody else, you know, that this was specific to them and, and other people didn't share their experience, and they were really surprised that other people might do and that they weren't on their own. 
And a lot of them talked about how they never had to drive the car before because in their relationship with their husbands or their partners, the, the, the partner was the one that did the driving. And that it wasn't until the partner or the husband got ill or passed away that they were forced to drive. And that was a significant source of anxiety for a lot of these women. Um, so so they were that was intriguing. And then, yeah, so then I joined the Health and Aging Research Team and that was something I was interested to follow up. And nobody else was really doing anything in terms of transport and mobility. Um, and so that was something I took up. So the, the paper the paper builds, I guess, on a, a previous paper where we were really just looking at the the proportion of people in the in the cohort who reported driving anxiety, what kind of impact it had on their functioning. Um, and then this was a subsequent paper to that. Okay, so maybe we can um, start off with you've you've spoken about driving anxiety. What what's the experience? What's the range of experience that falls into that category of driver anxiety? Yeah, so it is a spectrum of experience from people who uh, are more mildly anxious, which might I guess in this particular population of older adults could be uh, related to a number of things. Um, cognitive function, physical function, ability to move, you know, move their heads and, and check blind spots and things like that. Um, through to more, you know, this was a place where I had a near miss or a crash and, and, and that um, that's that causes some anxiety. I guess if you're thinking about a more from a more global population point of view or broader age range, driving anxiety is a is a, on a continuum from uh, from very mild anxiety that doesn't impact on somebody's functioning. So people might be mildly anxious for a particular reason, um, but that doesn't stop them from driving and, and doing what they need to do. Um, through Right through to people whose experience might be more described by a, a much more severe experience of anxiety or fear or phobia, uh, or it might be um, it might be a part of another kind of experience like a, a panic disorder, agoraphobia, um, those kinds of those kinds of things, or, or PTSD if it is related to having a, a vehicle crash, a serious vehicle crash, um, and everything in between. So you know, people will have significant anxiety in in specific situations. Um, and have difficulty in those specific situations, but it, but it you know it doesn't necessarily stop them from driving. Or people will avoid those particular situations um, and take a different route to avoid a specific place, or not drive at night, or not drive in bad weather, or on the open road. Um, right through to the other extreme where people won't drive. And they will uh, walk, cycle, take public transport, you know, rely on friends and family um, for their mobility to get around um, if they're really severely affected by, by this. Hmm. So I guess in the example you were talking about previously, uh, a couple of reasons there might be um, lack of experience, recent experience, because often it was the 
the male partner who had been doing the driving or the other partner, um, and, and also lack of confidence around that Jeez. as a result of lack of experience. Uh, and then there's other things you mentioned there, so something perhaps quite traumatic to Jeez. worrying about physical, physical functioning. Um, how, how is it that I'm actually going to go about the task of driving? There's something that's in the way of that or some kind of um, perhaps um, loss of faculty in being able to do that. Yes, yes, and and I guess you know the other thing for in, in general is that we discovered in earlier parts of the research program were that some people also were focused on uh, particular experiences like having panic attacks in the car, mm. so that was another reason. Um, one thing that hadn't been really discovered until the earlier research was that there was also significant concern that some people had about. Uh, that was more socially related. So people had quite, some people had quite significant concerns about um, annoying other drivers or driving in a way that would inconvenience other people or driving anger, people getting angry with them mm. um, and kind of road rage, you know, fear of road rage that had situations where they were, you know, um, they weren't driving fast enough on the road or, or something and, and, you know, being honked at and, uh, having unpleasant social situations and, and just worrying about um, getting in the way of other people or, or yeah driving in a way that wasn't um, that was annoying other drivers. It's interesting you brought that up. It was something I was going to bring up with you. Um, and you say that's something that's come up more recently, this fear of either aggravating other drivers either by your driving or getting into some kind of confrontation where there's aggression that's quite apparent. Yes, yes. So, so when I did my master's research and my PhD as well, we that was something that hadn't really been identified before, but that was a quite a big concern of the of the participants that there was the sort of social aspect to their fear. So, um, you know, they were worried about what other people thought of their driving and and, and annoying other drivers, and and in some cases. For some people, driving anxiety can cross all sort all of those areas. So they might be their fear might be it's not it's not something that's typically a single um, uh, underlying reason for the fear. It's often a multiple uh, multiple things like social concerns, fear of having an accident, um, fear of having uncontrollable anxiety symptoms while driving. Um, it's often a mixture. Mm of all of those things together. So it's not in terms of a diagnostic, you know, thinking about it from a diagnostic perspective, it often cuts across different categories of anxiety disorders mm. um, rather than sort of neatly sitting into, say, PTSD or panic disorder or social phobia or something like that. Yes. It's interesting what you were talking about just then because um, I guess there's a, it's quite subtle, it's quite nuanced, this idea of being perceived as being a bad driver rather than necessarily, and I think disentangling that from, um, you know, perceiving aggression from other drivers, there's something that's quite self-referential about being perceived as a bad driver, isn't there? Yes, yes. And I think, you know, people who are, who are, have a tendency to be anxious do often, you know, focus, you know, often focus on themselves and their own experiences and how that might come across to other people. So, um, often are quite concerned about yeah what what other people think and and how other people will respond and react yeah. yeah 
So I'm just thinking about um, how many people, uh, what kind of proportion of a population uh, experience driving anxiety? And is the older adult population different to the general population? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and we we haven't, there hasn't been any research at the moment uh, on the general, in terms of a, a general uh, across all age groups um, that has answered that question. Um, I have done uh, one small piece of work on that, but it, it wasn't a, a representative population group. Um, the, and the only um, data we have is from the Health and Ageing Research Team, and the uh, the proportion of people with, and at that stage, the data that was collected um, were for young, older adults. So they were the cohort was 55 to 72, um, and the, the there were about 20 percent of that group reported um, mild driving anxiety, um, and about five to six percent. Um, endorsed anxiety, driving anxiety that was more in the moderate to severe um, range. Um, I've just done some, we're just working on some research with uh, the University of Otago with another cohort of, of older drivers and it's looking like uh, we haven't done any um, robust analyses yet because the data is just being screened and, and checked and things but it's looking like the, the rates of driving anxiety is slightly higher in that group. Um, I'm just trying to find my notes on that. Um, slightly higher, so about uh, instead of 5 to 6% with moderate to severe anxiety, something like 10 to 11%, um, percent, but that's an older group as well, so, so they are all over 65 mm. Um and we're not really quite sure why that is or what's what's going on there, but that's what we're investigating in that piece of work. It sounds like you've hit a pretty rich vein here, given that there's so much that's not really known about driving anxiety and comparing these kind of like younger, older adults with the rest of the population. That's really curious. Yes, yeah, it is. It is. So we're really looking there at... Um, at what are the and we've just we're just um, looking at another another study that enables us to follow up this cohort um, to look more at what are the things that are um, what are the sort of pathways I suppose that older adults go through in terms of their decisions to to stop driving um, because we know that we know that the literature says that older adults who who stop driving are much more likely to experience a whole host of not so good outcomes so um, they have increased uh, they have increased uh, health problems they have increased um, uh, impacts on their obviously their social ability to engage in various activities in the community um, and it also impacts their, um, their mortality rate so um, it is you know we're trying to I guess identify the kinds of things that um, make people more vulnerable to um, not so good outcomes from driving cessation and also the people who have good outcomes um, from stopping driving and how how they're different 
um, so that we can yeah try and mitigate some of those um, not so good outcomes that, that, that the literature you know sees happen uh, to older adults when they stop driving. Mm. Let's explore that a bit a bit more. But uh, first, I'd like you to tell me uh, about the paper that that we've yes. uh, that we've picked today. So, um, what is it that you were trying to do? I guess you were looking specifically at the impacts of driving anxiety uh, uh, on the health and well being of these younger and older adults. Tell tell me about how you went about looking at answering that question. Yeah. So um, so we we had uh, this was. Um, uh, some data that was collected from the Health and Ageing Research Team um, cohort, and we had uh, this information about their ratings of driving anxiety, the degree of driving anxiety they um, self-reported, um, and and also the um, the subsequent ratings of the health and well-being. Um, uh, that they reported in that in that survey too. So we were really just looking at, um, for the first time, you know, um, to to what degree was this experience of driving anxiety um, linked up, I suppose, with health and quality of life outcomes. So um, we'll be able to do this in a more longitudinal way um, with the subsequent um, waves of data collection um, in much the same way as we're doing with Otago University. But uh, this paper in particular was just really looking at exploring what are these relationships like? Does driving anxiety um, explain any of the outcomes in health and well-being? Uh, health and quality of life over and above the sort of big picture variables like socio-demographic um, uh, variables, which often account for quite a lot of the variance and things like, you know, in, in, in health, physical, mental health and, and quality of life. So we were just looking at, it. did it have much of an impact um, on those key health um, and well-being variables um, in in this in this group, yeah. So this is um, part of a, a longer uh, and bigger study on the health and well being of older adults. And yeah. and in this one time point, you looked at around about it was about two thousand five hundred, two thousand four hundred younger yes. younger older adults, and um, right. yeah. And looking at the relationship between um, their driver anxiety self rating, yes, and their mental and physical health and quality of life, yes, yeah. And so what did you find? Well, there was a, a small effect. So um, it wasn't, uh, as, you, as we probably yeah, would have imagined, it did have a, um, the drive, you know, driving anxiety was associated with poorer mental health and physical health and uh, quality of life, and that was over and above the effect of the socio-demographic um, Variables, but it was a small amount of the variance, so it was it wasn't a you know it wasn't something that was large, having a big impact. It had a very small impact, but nevertheless, it was there. Um, and I guess the the more interesting uh, aspect of that was that typically um, 
typically in the research that, that I've done and the research that has been done elsewhere on driving anxiety, women report, uh, more women report driving anxiety. So it's a, it's a predominantly um, uh, experience that's described by women. Um, but in this, in this older group, it was still reported um, more predominantly by women, but in terms of the the impacts on um, mental health and quality of life, in particular, um, the as the as the driving anxiety increased, so people who rated higher levels of driving anxiety, men and women were both um, more likely to have lower mental health and quality of life if they had higher levels of driving anxiety, but actually men had um, lower scores compared to women. Oh. So it seemed to be, they seem to be more impacted by high levels of driving anxiety in terms of their mental health and their quality of life than women. So um, there seems to be something going on there about uh, perhaps, you know, being anxious about driving, maybe that's got something to do with, um, you know, the the role that driving plays in the lives of men, and particularly in New Zealand, and um, and issues of identity and and mm. role and um, functioning. You know that that um, that that seems to have some. There seems to be something going on there that we're going to look more closely at. It's, I'm really interested in that. I mean, I guess we're really boiling down to what is the difference in meaning of driving for men and women? What does it represent for them? What does it enable them to do with their lives? And particularly, perhaps, um, as this cohort ages, then driving as an activity perhaps in modern life is seen very differently to perhaps when they learnt to drive or perhaps yeah. were driving more in their lives. Mm, mm. Yes, I think so. And also, you know, other literature would suggest too that women, um, these different, I guess, women, men, women and men can have different views of the, of the purpose of driving. So women can often, literature would suggest that women can often view driving as a, as a practical you know, a way of meeting practical sort of needs, I suppose, like, um, you know, meeting family and, and doing activities with family and friends. Whereas men, um, the research suggests that men view driving as a, a more important in terms of independence and identity. Mm. So, um, so the research would suggest that there are some different, yeah, gendered views, I suppose, about the function and the, and the purpose and the meaning of driving and, and when you can't do that, what impact does that have? So that might um, be something that we need to think about when we're looking at what does this mean and does this pan out when you look at um, the cohort as they age and how people are getting through this process of driving cessation if that, if that arises for them. So I guess that brings us on to the the key question, really. Um, who who should care about this, Joe? What's the point of this? Particularly this idea of uh, driving cessation, as you said, I was taken yeah. by by that in the paper. Well, I think we should all care about it because what we what we know is that there's a, a hugely aging population that that the um, 
the people are driving in older age for longer. They're driving more kilometres um, than they ever used to. There's going to be more older drivers on the road. Um, so I guess, you know, there'll be there'll be more people to, to be supported to drive safely. Um, but they'll also we also know that the impact of, of cessation um, is quite significant in terms of health, uh, physical health, mental health, loneliness, um, mortality are all at uh, increased uh, risk of, you know, risk for all those things is increased with driving cessation. So it is, uh, with an ageing population, it is a huge health health concern um, and policy concern, really, um, to be thinking about how to best support uh, our older adults to stay on the road as long as is safely possible because we know that that has effects, you know, uh, positive effects on their health, their well-being. Um, but also if they need to stop or they need to regulate, self-regulate their, their driving, say, to you know, stop driving at night or, the you know, if their visibility is, is their vision is deteriorating um, or their ability to move their heads and, and check um, uh, scanning and things like that, then they might need to self-regulate and restrict some aspects of their driving. Um, but also for those who do need to stop, you know, given we know that there'll be more of those people and we know the impact that it, that it can have, um, that will put huge pressure on our health system um, and we need to know more about how to support people through that process in a way that mitigates the often not-so-good outcomes for them in terms of health and well-being. So mm. I think it's huge relevance for lots of different government departments, um, you know, transport agency, the Ministry of Transport, um, the Ministry of Health, um, all sorts of places. So I think it is a it is a large issue that is um, that we need to be thinking about because there will be there will be health implications. I think for lots of older adults. I think you're right. I think um, what I was struck by was, um, I guess the it would be interesting to drill more into the concept of driver anxiety as well. Cause as we're talking, I'm very struck by its multidimensional nature. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, it's around confidence. It's perhaps around familiarity, uh, yeah. the environment that you're driving in, uh, for the length of time that you're going to be driving for. And as you say, the time of day that you're going to be driving. So all of these factors start to play in, to perhaps this anxiety and perhaps there may be some, like you say, support around uh, addressing some of that anxiety so that it does not lead to this premature driving cessation, which then has a knock-on impact upon their health and well-being and quality of life with perhaps severe consequences and then increased load on the social welfare and health sectors. Yes, and it is very multifaceted and we know quite a bit about that Um in younger people, but we don't really know to what extent that's, that uh, that extends to older adults um, in, in, a, in a robust sense. You know, we don't have that information yet. So it would be good to, to get more of a sense for how much of it is. Uh, I mean, I think it is, there is a lot of issues about confidence and um, self-confidence and levels of comfort 
Um, but what that exactly means, you know, because that could be about all sorts of things. That could be about, gosh, you know, my um, my legs don't work as well as they used to. I'm not I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to, you know. Um, do what I need to in an emergency or my reaction times are, are slowing down so I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to stop quickly if I need to or um, I'm getting lost and I'm not sure how to get home or, you know, so there's, you know, there's, there's as well as the women who have lost their husbands who are now required to drive. So there's all sorts of different potential issues that, that older adults might be talking about when they say they've lost confidence in their driving ability. Um, it could be about physical functioning. It could be about cognitive functioning. could be about just their um, being thrust into situations that aren't familiar to them um, or moving, you know, moving a house and needing to learn about how to navigate around a new suburb or city or something like that. Um, or somebody moving from a rural area into the city to be closer to, to health services and things like that. So mm. there's a variety of, of factors that might underlie somebody saying I've lost confidence in my ability to drive or I'm, ner- you know, I'm nervous about driving um, that could be dealt with in a whole range of different ways. I think you, um, you've hit upon something else I was thinking about there was um, what are the alternatives for people who perhaps um, say, actually, driving's not for me anymore, mm-hmm. um, where we have perhaps a scenario where we have increasing traffic, car sales are still continuing, and even though we may be making the switch uh, to different powered forms of vehicles yeah. or using you know, self-drive cars or, or shared rides, there's still going to be a lot of traffic on the road. What are the alternatives for people who perhaps are living in these rural areas where there aren't that many public transport alternatives? Um, yet we know that when people stop being able to be mobile, and, and most often that's through driving, then what else can we be doing? That's a really good question. Um, and I'm... I mean, I think it is a big issue. I also think the issue about about driving as part of uh, the psyche and the identity of people in New Zealand is another issue too mm. because I think, like I said, particularly for men, although also for some women too, you know, giving up the keys is, is, is a major blow to people's sense of self. Mm. And I think in New Zealand, you know, um, the, the sort of typical um, – view is that you know you've got to drive you that's part of being a kiwi is getting out and driving and on the open road and exploring the country and things like that so i think it compared to a big city where it's it's much more the norm to be using public transport because it's such a vast expanse of you know how else are you going to get around because there's so many other barriers to using a car Uh, i don't think that's so much the case in new zealand i think there's still a lot of um of identity bound up in driving in New Zealand. So I, I think that there are, you know, a lot of people will resist that because of, of that issue and, and that's what Kiwis do. They drive, you know, they get behind the wheel. And But I think it is an important issue about about what alternatives are there and how are we building the infrastructure, infrastructure to support that um, because, you know, in a lot of places public transport isn't very good and isn't um, isn't accessible or easy to use or convenient for um, for anybody. Um, 
and we do need to start thinking creatively about about how you know how that might be addressed um, soon. The last point I was just thinking about as you were talking was you know what we could end up with is as you say people have driving as a perhaps a core part of their identity. It's essential to what it is to being a Kiwi. What we could end up with is um, a whole cohort of actually quite ambivalent drivers who, despite their anxiety, it's not enough for them to stop driving, yet they're still quite worried whilst they're out driving. And I think that that's something that we all have to bear in mind, especially as that population is getting older and is mm-hmm. continuing to drive and it's quite a large proportion of the population, yeah. it has implications for everybody using those roads. Yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. It, it's Yeah, that is a really complex topic with, with all sorts of layers, I think, and, um, and different, yeah, I think culture is a big, plays a role in there too, um, as we've been talking about. So I think... Um, there's a lot more work to be done. <laughs> and that was this week's show of Who Cares? What's the Point? Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you enjoyed that conversation between myself and Joe. You can follow the show on Twitter at WCWTP or myself, Saab Johal, at Saab. That's at S-A-R-B. You can find us on Facebook, just search for Who Cares What's The Point, and you can follow us at whocareswhatsthepoint.com too, and you can send us an email from there, or contact me via Twitter or Facebook. Hope you enjoyed the show, and don't forget... Who cares?